Sam Richards. Yes. We're here to talk about your 37 years in the classroom and um, what it is you actually do in the classroom. And the reason that it's a question even of what you do in the classroom is, is because, I mean, I think it's because what you do in the classroom is more like art than science even. Uh, even though I think there's a lot of science behind what you do, but I think you take a position like a lot of artists do where things come through you. You actually make people think and feel and talk and question and argue and project things onto you and in a way that I think a really effective artist does. And in a way that an effective teacher does. And you have a lot of material to look at to see mm -hmm. that, that art. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of teachers do their work and it disappears mm -hmm. when a student when the students leave the classroom but you actually have a lot of material that is visible to all of us you know both from the recordings of many of your lectures but also to a television show and a TED talk two three TED talks actually but mm -hmm. uh, one that's been viewed how many times or I don't know three or four million or so there's a lot to look at in, mm -hmm. in terms of what you do so that's what we're here to do as somebody who's been watching your work for for 34 years I, I think I'm the most solid witness of what has happened in, in you, at, at how you've evolved. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also your biggest critic. Um, we talk about what you do all the time. So I'm coming with both um, an interest in helping to frame what you do, but also to challenge some of the things that you do. Um, and, and we'll get to talk about that as we go. Great. Great. So let's start out first, though, with your history as a stand-up comic, because I think that there's a lot of laughter in your classroom and, then, and you're dealing with a really serious issues. There's nothing that you're dealing with that is not serious and profound and based on conflict and histories of war and oppression, et cetera. No, there's not much filled with lightness and levity. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're in a room and there is a lot of lightness and levity in some way. There's I think, some. There's some. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to talk about what a comedian does and mm -hmm. your history. Okay, so I, when I was an undergrad student, I started uh, working as a stand-up comic. It was the time when stand-up comedy took over the country, and there was a club that opened in my town, and I would go on Sunday nights and to the amateur night, and I started winning, and then I would be invited back to, do a, to be the MC for the show, which meant I did my set, and then I would introduce all of the other comics. And, and I, I actually was able to open over a period of time for quite a, a number of comics that later went on to be rather well-known and famous. And so I learned a lot from them. And I, and I, and what I found that I did and what I found that I, I find that I continue to do is I take ideas that it, what, what I think comics do, right? You take ideas that appear to be contradictory or opposite of one another in some way, right? I juxtapose them. I bring them together and in, in a way that's often has humor attached to it. And I, and I do that with, culture, cultural differences and ethnicities and so on, all, all, the, all the things that we do in sociology. So comedians are motivated by the idea that they want to get people to laugh. Yeah. And I don't, that's not what I'm after. I want, I want students, I want people to think laughter is, is a byproduct that happens. But you know, if, if for me, if, if you're, if you're laughing at something that they say in class, you're usually also thinking at the same time you're laughing. You're also paying attention. And you're paying attention. <laughs> Which is actually, as teachers, we know, any teacher knows that that's actually a, a, quite a feat. Well, because students won't be in the room if they're not paying attention, right? That, that they'll be drifted, drifting off thinking about other things. And so I, that, that's really important. 
for me as as a teacher, right? Well, I think also another thing that's just important about the piece regarding comedy mm-hmm. is and humor is that um, what and I mean I think of somebody like Dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. Chris Rock um, mm-hmm. in particular. That well, I mean many people, but first they come to mind for me right now. But where they take ideas that are difficult and uncomfortable and things mm-hmm. that people don't want to talk about and they walk the audience into those ideas mm-hmm. and suddenly now you're actually talking about them right and it's of course controversial and many things that they get into you, you know there can be a lot of conversation about it but the point is i i see you as a teacher walking pe- students into subjects and areas that they don't otherwise want to like the rest of the world doesn't want to mm-hmm. yeah, and that somehow they once they're it. laughing or once you've been a- you've made it approachable mm-hmm. now they're in it mhm mhm yeah and and like many what i think are good com what i think is good comedy i'm not into the gotcha moments kind mm-hmm. of thing and mm-hmm. i don't like that it's it makes me cringe it makes me um i it, i feel uncomfortable and so well, I, I don't do any of that I'm, I'm not into humor at the expense of somebody else mm-hmm. um, it and so i'm more into the awkward humor i'm into awkwardness you know when i <laughs> when i i used to have this stand up in my stand up routine which evolved over time i mean you know uh, but I, I would do this thing where I, I would do a magic trick and I would get it wrong. Purposely. I mean, I would pick, I purposely, I'd bring someone up on stage, I'd make a big deal and I'd pick the wrong card. And I was the amateur, right? So they thought some people would just cringe. You could see them just falling in their seats and I would just come back and keep going. right? And then about a couple minutes later, I'd reach in my pocket and I'd pull the card out. I'd say, wait a minute, hang on, this is your card, isn't it? You mm-hmm. know, and then there'd be a cheers and stuff, right? Because then I had them. And I thought, oh my gosh, few people could could hold the tension of that. But, you know, I can. So. As someone who's been married to you for decades, I can attest to your willingness hey, listen, to be awkward. I love dad jokes, even though I'm not a dad. <laughs> Um, so anyway, but I think it's, I think we just to say one more thing, this gotcha moment, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that that comes from the tradition of comedy. I mean, it can, but as much as it also, it comes from also this reality television show theme that runs through the culture where it's just like, we want to see people, you know, unmask them. And, and I think, um, I have to be, I have to really point emphasize to my class and you've helped me with this, that that's not what is going on here. Mm-hmm. But I think the students see that so often everywhere. It's omnipresent all over the web, all over television, mm-hmm. that even in spite of me saying that, in spite of having other students say that, sometimes they can't help but imagine that's what's going on. Or at least when they then later tell their friends about what happened in class, their friends can only imagine that that must be what gotcha Sam Richards moment. is doing. Yeah. He's doing what all these other people on mm-hmm. television are doing. And so, and that's the part that is really difficult to about, again, looking at your body of work mm-hmm. when you're not in the classroom, because when you're in the classroom over the semester and it is a semester, yes. right? Even though um, there's now 800 students in your class, you're, you're creating an environment and there is a trust building part yes. of things. And there's a lot that happens that is, um, you know, not just humorous, but also sincere and heartfelt and painful and all kinds of things that happen in that room that create an environment that is more than just the sum of the video 
clips that yeah, people could right. watch or the things that your students tweet, right? Yes, and so, that's right. and that's a you know that's a tough place because you really and I've watched you over the years trying to always come up with ways to get a live moment to happen in the classroom, which is happening all the time, and mm-hmm. you work with that without people being defended against the mm-hmm. moment. So that because the only thing that you seems like you can work with are when people actually say something real. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's turn to the sociological case studies that really have become the bulk of your classroom. Mm-hmm. I've watched this evolve over time, and I think I, I would like to say that you st- you stumbled on doing these case studies, and what you started to find was that these were the most potent learning moments. Something would just happen in the classroom, and you would use it. You eventually came to the point where you actually started to help to create the moments so that you mm-hmm. could use them as teaching opportunities. So what 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 is the... Well, case study. Well, you know, to be fair or to be honest, I had to finally admit to myself that students were less likely to pay attention when I spoke than when they spoke to one another. And, you know, it's hard as a teacher, as someone who's been in the classroom, as you say, for 37 years, I'd like to believe that I've acquired a bit of wisdom over that time. So I have something to say, but the truth is they'd they feel like this 18 or 19 or 20 year old has more to say. So, um, okay. So here it is. I have to, I have to jump in. Or, or maybe not that they have more to say, but they're engaged when you select a set of circumstances and, and questions to focus on. And so. Yeah. And not only that, but people who watch the stream from all over the world, the thing that they say very clearly is they love listening to Penn State students talking mm-hmm. yep. about their lives and about their experience. And, so, I, can, and I can say as, as a witness as well, that when, when you ask somebody to say, you know, tell me everything that you know about gender inequality, I'm amazed. I'm always amazed at what humans know about the world, which is why I'm actually not a teacher yes. because I think humans are brilliant and I don't need to be telling them things. Yes. And and so it's amazing how much people can share with one yes, another. Yes. I I would I I agree with that. The class because it's so large and there are students from all over the US and all over the world and probably about 35 to 40% of the class are, are what we would identify or call students of color, black and brown students, and then people in the LGBT community. And oh my gosh, the, the diversity is tremendous. Regardless of what it is I'm talking about, I can find someone in the room who can shed light on it. And that, that just has value. Why not, why not get it from the source? The other thing is that students have a variety of viewpoints. And I think there's this kind of general sense that college students, American students, you know, they're all liberal and they all think a certain way. And that's just not the case at all. And when you're talking to as many students as you and I do, students who are really activated, those who are not activated, those from just so many perspectives in the world, the the American college students, or certainly our students, are extremely complex. And so we have the opportunity to share many, many different things in the room. And I think that there are a lot of other professors and a lot of administrators that never get a sense, a full sense of this, right? Because you're not talking to the range of students that, that you and I are able to talk to. So I, I think I just take advantage of that. And so what is a sociological case study? Well, it's when I take some idea, some idea that I want to, want to explore to excavate, mm-hmm. say whatever that might be, 
and I invite students to come up and participate in a way to talk about that, to explore it. Maybe so can I'm, you give us an example? Yeah, maybe I, I want to, we're going to just do something, have a conversation about hair. People with different types of hair. How do you how do you manage your hair? How do you think about hair? What is hair to you? What is hair in your culture? What's it mean in your culture? A couple semesters ago, um, a woman from Korea, an African-American woman fr- from the U.S., a, a woman from Nigeria, a woman from Europe, and then a white woman from the U.S., and then I think a Latino woman from Mexico, I think she was. And I just, and we just had this long conversation about hair, and it was so fascinating to hear just different ways in which they talk about it. Like, you know, the woman from Korea, just the ways in which people in Korea or people in China think about hair and what matters and what doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And it's different than in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just about straight hair versus tightly coiled hair or, or wavy hair or something. So so you're, you're looking both within cultural groups and across cultural groups mm-hmm. um, and, and getting them to those things to talk to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so I also, but I, but I can't do it on myself. I mean, I, I actually know a lot about hair, so I could say many, many things about hair. But why not get them to talk about it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, so you're setting up the the case study by setting up the parameters. You're selecting people who could talk about the particular mm-hmm. issue and activate a lot of conversation about something that's not going to be one dimensional, but it's going to actually be very culturally based mm-hmm. on the differences and similarities. Yeah, and I have a pretty good idea of what the, the say the the woman from Korea was going to say mm-hmm. before I, before she even if I had selected someone from China or, or Korea or South Korea, I already know that ahead of time. I have a pretty good idea of differences, the ways in which a woman from Nigeria and an African American woman, let's say from D.C., the different ways in which they'll talk about hair, the mm-hmm. different way you know it, it it matters, you know. So okay, we got this. So I'm I'm already thinking about it because I've been having these conversations for years and years and years. Right. So you've shifted the, from the idea of I'm going to tell you things mm-hmm. as the singular person in front of the room. I know enough to say who can say all the different pieces and then so that we can show the rest of the students something as opposed to me telling mm-hmm. and using mm-hmm. PowerPoints and percentages and, and photos and, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. And so you get the students to speak for themselves. Yeah, or it just for makes their a lot of sense. Or, yeah, it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. As part of your pedagogy, it mm-hmm. flies in the face of people talking about or of a critique that like, how is this one, this white hetero guy teaching a class on race, which is you're actually sort of collaboratively teaching the class with people whose their own voices are are there to to set the tone and set the mm-hmm. the foundations of all the issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, listen, it doesn't matter who it is. Well, look, symbolically, it matters that I'm a white guy, that I'm increasingly an old white guy, mm-hmm. an American, that, you know, I'm the one kind of setting the tone. Mm-hmm. It all revolves around me, and that matters symbolically and politically and so on. Positionally. But it, just, it just so happens that I'm in this space. But what I want to do as much as possible is give up the power and give it to other, give it to students, give it to other people. Mm-hmm. With these case studies, one of the things that I deal with sometimes is that I have to ask questions, beginners' questions. It makes me sound like I don't have any idea of what's going on, but I can't turn to the class and say, "Listen, I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway." So, for an example, maybe a a black woman will be up. She'll have pink, long, straight pink hair. And then I would, I'm 
I'm going to say, I'm going to ask a question. The way I'm going to work this is, so is that your natural color hair? <laughs> you know, and I know it's a wig, you know, and of course I know it's a wig, but I'm going to ask that like, how, well, how'd you get your hair so straight? And it, you know, and then we're playing around, but I have to do it that way. Right. Or else it just sounds like there's no sense in doing the case study. I let her do it. Right. So I deal with that sometimes, but you know, that's part of the price of doing what I do. The purpose of this of these case studies and the value of these case studies and the richness of these live moments in the mm -hmm. classroom is one thing. But then there are is the other side where there are some some critiques of you that say that you're either tokenizing the individuals that you bring up or at worst even exploiting mm -hmm. students. In other words, um, using them to uplift yourself somehow. That would be the sort of definition of exploiting. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? I want students to be subjects and not objects. So I invite students to participate in the class, directly participate in the class to uplift their subjectness so that they're more than stereotypes, I think is what I would say. Because mm -hmm. it's easy to, when you're talking about the issues that we talk about in Social 19, it's easy just to see people as stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're really good at that. And st young people are really good at that. What it's, do you mean good at that? They're, they just can quickly size someone up and just fit them in a box somewhere, mm -hmm. some kind of stereotypical box. It's crazy how many stereotypes there are. So I'm, I'm trying to do the opposite of that. I want, I want to show... You're trying to uplift them. Uplift them, for sure. So an, an interesting thing that I've seen over the years, so you're... This is, again, in this idea that you're asking students to speak for themselves, for mm -hmm. their reality, for mm -hmm. their sense of the particular subject, right? Mm -hmm. And then and then let that be part of the conversation that the students will have, one, in the classroom, but two, in all the discussion groups that they're, that they're a part of, right? Mm -hmm. And I just want to stand next to that. What, one of the things that I've observed over the years in dealing with the same issues is that when students are looking at uh, data, mm -hmm. right? So like, wealth inequality, for example, right? I've seen students talk about after seeing those data where we now just put up the very objective scientific information, right? As opposed to asking the students to speak for themselves. And obviously you need both. And I know you do both of those things in your classroom. But there's also a really objectifying experience that I've seen students talk about, in particular students of color, mm -hmm. when they see those data. Mm -hmm. I've seen everything... At, and we, when we've talked about it from crying to anger to numbness to mm -hmm. et cetera. So there's a whole world of things that aren't being accessed necessarily that are important in, mm -hmm. in terms of creating subjectness of students, mm -hmm. um, which is, I, I just think, paradoxical. Well, I'm quite aware of that, given the, uh, the amount of on the ground conversations that we have with students and uh, and people, not just and with people, and I, and I'm always aware that when when somebody comes up in front of the class, in front of all those people, I'm aware that they're going to have, aside from being nervous, because almost everybody is nervous, that they have a mix of feelings about whatever it is we're talking about. And if we're talking about something like discrimination and being discriminated against um, because of skin color, or because of gender, it matters. It, people feel that. And I know they feel that because I talk to people about the fact that they feel it. And so I'm, as I'm walking through this with somebody, I'm walking through with the idea that there are a lot of things that are happening, not only for this person in, 
who's standing up here, but for other people in the classroom mm-hmm. who are who walk in their same shoes. And uh, so it's something that I'm quite cognizant of, and and, and I and I feel it. You know, I feel it. What, and what what do you mean when you well, say that? Well, I mean, I, I I talk to so many students about their experiences and about their feelings, and I hear from it, and you know, deep conversations, and and so I'm I'm aware of the of the the struggles and the pain that are associated with a lot of these topics. I also want to widen this out for a mm-hmm. moment because, you know, you and I are so focused on students and conversations that we have with them all the time, but you also have a much broader life experience of mm-hmm. talking to adults all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it might be, I just want you to say something about that because you're, all of your knowledge doesn't come from students. If you will, I think yeah. somehow it's some. It sounds like that. How I got to be here, or I got to be where I am, is because I'm I'm a listener, I'm a traveler, and I'm an explorer, and I've always enjoyed other people and other cultures from a very very young age. And um, I, I, it's one thing I got from my mother. And I've been meeting with people and talking to people and listening to people from you know all over the world, but really listening and hearing their stories, and then. As a teacher, I'm someone who then comes back to my, cl- I bring those stories back into my classroom. You don't just listen. I mean, I absolutely, mm-hmm, that's, what, mm-hmm. but you also put yourself in situations with people mm-hmm. and you walk with them. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just want to, I think it's important to say, it's not like you're just traveling to a resort and, you know, going mm-hmm. and speaking to the locals, you know, I mean, you're, you lived in Ecuador and you live mm-hmm. in places and you, you, you know, you go to the to the world to the and so mm-hmm. i want you to say something about your other part of your experience and the ways in which this has broken your heart mm-hmm. because you don't do this because you just talk to students well i left the united states for the first time when i was 20 and i never returned you know i, I i've been an explorer ever since as you say i lived for many years abroad in different places have shared many many experiences with a wide range of people and I've seen a lot of things that most Americans don't see, and I know a lot of things that most Americans don't know. And I speak on behalf of people in other parts of the world whose lives have been deeply impacted by the United States and by the capitalist system and by our policies and my tax dollars. So I bring that back into the classroom, and I bring it back into my life. And there are ways in which my heart is broken, you know. It's not just these the students who enroll in my classes, but it is about what I've learned in the world and now what I share. So when I'm having a conversation with a student in front of my class, I'm bringing fifty nine years. Well, it would be I guess really thirty nine years of experience and conversations. Mm. Can you give us one example of what one of those life experiences you know, are that I, changed I'll you? I'll give you one that I tell my class a lot. I was in Nicaragua during the war in the mid late 80s, mid-80s, I guess it was 87. And I was walking along a dirt road, and the war was happening, and I came across this elderly woman sitting on her deck, and she said, Oye, gringo, donde vas? So, you know, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going down the road here. So I sat down on her porch and we started talking and she, the front of her house was blown off, was, was gone. And I said, what happened to your house? And she said, ah, oh, the soldiers were here and they blew it up. 
and she was talking about the United States and the role we were playing in that war and how people were suffering, how she suffered. And she said, when she found out I was a teacher, she said, well, promise me you'll go back to the U.S. and talk about these issues. And I, I said, yeah, I promise you. I promise that I'll do that. Um, that was a long time ago. And I, and I talk about the issues. I always talk about international issues. And, um, and it's from there to, to, to Haiti, to elsewhere in Latin America, to Africa, the Philippines, to here, there, wherever. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just there's so many experiences, so many things I've seen that I want to share. A lot of your experiences mm -hmm. are international experiences. And a lot of those experiences internationally are in places where the United States' presence has been felt in a really negative way. Mm -hmm. And you bring that very much into this class on what used to be race relations in America and is now race, ethnicity, and culture, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, a Which class- half international and half U.S. Over the years, it wasn't. It, I mean, mm -hmm. for decades, this class has been about race in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. But you've always brought this international perspective in. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people who think this is a class for white people? I never know what to say because if you're if you're sitting in the class and you have that idea, then you're you just have your blinders on. I mean, you, you your ears are closed and your blinders are on because how can it be for white people? You know, there's unless you're Haitian, and even then, very few of my Haitian students have ever been to Haiti or have been there in the recent past. You don't know anything about Haiti. And I know a lot about Haiti. You know, we have projects in Haiti. We work in Haiti. I've been to Haiti 10 times. What could you say? Like, you know nothing about this place that has deep been deeply impacted by the United States or the Muslim Middle East. You know, you know about Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, places where we'll talk to people in the class. I mean, it, or Native American reservations. Nobody, people don't know. They have no idea about reservations. I mean, there are, there, it's a long, long list of things. So... You know, when I hear students say that, I just feel a little bit of disappointment for them. You know, not for me. I mean, it's for them that their ears are closed off and they somehow think that they don't have something to learn. Let's talk about a couple examples mm -hmm. of case studies that you've done that can be, you know, like art like we, we were talking mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. they could ca they cause a lot of conversation mm -hmm. in, among people and so again some people might say tokenizing and other people would say very different things so just give mm -hmm. us some examples a few years ago i had a we had a, i had a student in class he was a fir first semester freshman and he as a result of an infection he lost both of his legs his right arm and on his left arm he only had his thumb and his index finger he came up in front of the class on the very first, at the end of class on the first day, he was talking to somebody and I, I could tell right away he was really open to talking about his disability. And we started talking briefly and, and I said, hey, how about, are you interested in coming up in front of class, talking in front of class next time, next class? And he said, sure. He said, what do you want to talk about? I said, well, let's just, we'll just talk about you. He said, oh, I would love it. Right. So, you know, and I, and I knew right away that he fully open. just. So can I, before you say the story, yeah. can you just say in, in the class on race, ethnicity, and culture, what were you picturing that you saw in him that you thought would be relevant to the class? Well, 
culture is there's disability culture. So I was the faculty advisor to the disabled student organization at Rutgers for many years. And so I have a deep sense of the disability culture and the ways in which people with disabilities feel ostracized and feel like outsiders and feel like others. Mm -hmm. And I know the subtleties of that Mm -hmm. and I know how to navigate it and walk through it. So in any case, I said, I have an idea in mind. And I said, I could tell you about it or not. He said, I said, it's a bit edgy. And he said, edgy's good. I love it. I said, well, is anything off limits? He said, nothing's off limits. I'm, I'm going to follow you. I love it. <laughs> so I said, okay. So what I did was I, I asked for three volunteers and they went in the back room. And then I, and I, which and, is a, like a backstage, backstage room. So they couldn't hear what was going on. I invited him up and I said, well, here's what's going to happen, class. Sean here, where I'm going to bring, I'm going to have each person come out and greet Sean. And now, mind you, look, look at Sean, right? He's got, his right arm, he had, he had a hook on it. He has braces for his legs. He had just two, his, two, his thumb and his index finger, right? So, and then we're going to see how they do with this. So one at a time, and I, he stood in such a way that they had to really shake his hand somehow, right? And I knew it's going to be awkward, right? I know that because I've been through it. So it's just like, we're going to do it for the whole class. And the class is kind of holding their breath. And so one at a time, they come out and the first person kind of didn't know what to do and Second person didn't really know what to do. Eventually, you know, I kind of said, well, are you going to say hello? Are you going to greet him? And they, they kind of did. The third person came out, immediately just started with his right hand, stopped, pulled it back, and put his left hand out and shook Sean's hand. And the whole class <laughs> erupted in cheers. And it was just, it was awesome. But what was cool about that was Sean then got to tell the class, he told the class, hey, this is what happened to me. And, and then he made all sorts of friends in class that he, that he wouldn't have made because I know that people are really awkward around people with disabilities like him, mm-hmm. right? I think he got invited to a frat party and like, you know, this kind of, not that that's something to really aspire to, but what it means is that you've been accepted at some level, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was just, so now someone could say, oh, Sam was tokenized. And now I couldn't say to the class, hey, listen, I had a com- conversation with Sean. Like, he's really cool with this kind of stuff, you know, or like, Sean, can you tell the class that, you know, mm-hmm. you this was all good for you? I can't do that because it just kind of destroys the whole thing. So I run the risk of someone thinking that I was tokenizing him, even though it was very clear from the entire experience that he was comfortable, I was comfortable. And in the end, the people that walked out of the room greeted him we're comfortable we'll talk about them a little bit because maybe we talked about that these aren't gotcha moments so how do you work with the the students who might stumble across something or say the wrong thing or do the thing that feels you know that well i try i try you know the i try to keep the class moving pretty quickly right so sometimes i forget and i don't say hey by the way here's what was going on there with you right here's what how i why i had you go in the back room here's what we want to see let's walk through it um, but usually there's a teaching of some sort, right? There's always a teaching. It's like, look, you can't get through awkwardness without walking through awkwardness, right? You can't, you can't, you're always going to, you can't subjectify someone without having the opportunity to subjectify them. Otherwise, they're always going to be an object to you. So you've got to have a conversation face to face with someone in a wheelchair and eventually talk about the chair. And you don't want to talk about the chair in the first 10 minutes or the first 10 seconds, but you know, eventually you, that chair is part of the reality of life. And so, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm walking people through how to do this as opposed to, let's just pretend that we don't see skin color and that we don't see that, 
you know, this person I'm talking to has alopecia, for example, right? Like, I'll just pretend that that doesn't exist right there. It's like, no, it does exist. They know they have alopecia. You know, you don't have to be like a three-year-old and say, hey, you have alopecia, you know? But nonetheless, you can't, ignoring those things, he makes people objects. If, if it's something that you notice and you go back home and you tell your roommate or you tell your friend or you tell somebody else, they become an object to you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to stop to, to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. And, and allow people to approach the things that are unapproachable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when, when another example is when I had a student who was transitioning female to male, once again, knew he totally comfortable, said, yeah, I'd love to come and tell my story. And I've had many students who have transitioned, as you know, mm-hmm. you know some of them. And, and so I said, awesome, why don't you come? Let's, we'll sit up in the front and you and I'll talk about it. What's going on? What's happening? And so it was an awesome experience for him and a, and a great experience for the class to hear this. But you could, that would be another example of, you could easily say, hey, I was using him or I was... But I wasn't using, he, he was leading the conversation, even though he was a little bit nervous at first. So I had to kind of push things along mm-hmm. more than I normally would. But, you know, it's these kinds of, those are the kinds of things that happen. You know, over the years, you've really helped me work with students who are volunteering. Because I have a tendency, because, because I want to keep the class going quickly, mm-hmm. I have a tendency just to dismiss people and say, okay, thanks for volunteering, and then move on to the next case study or whatever it is that mm-hmm. we're doing. Just because of the pace of the class. But the pace of the class. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm, I'm the writer. I'm the director. I'm the, one of the, the main actors. I'm doing technician. all the te- technician. I'm de- I mean, we have a huge team. Jeff, obviously, is the main technician and then we have our directors of the stream and so on but i do a lot of the work and so sometimes i just forget and you've really helped me over the years to say no you gotta pause and you have to really thank them for volunteering and and i think a couple of the times when i over the past several years when i kind of lost students a little bit and i had to really get 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 them back bring them back in is when i was a you know kind of one time pushing for volunteers, I didn't have people that wanted to volunteer for something, and I, and it was such an awesome case study. But I just couldn't get the right people to volunteer, and I was pushing a little harder than I should have, and and I lost students pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? Because this is volunteering. You don't you don't get you can't mm-hmm. volunteer with your arm behind your back. And secondly, and I apologize for that. Mm-hmm. Right? And and another time was it was a particularly intense case study. I think it was interesting. If, provocative case study. I didn't adequately thank people for participating. And so I've really learned over the years that, hey, we're all in this together. And, mm-hmm. you know, I keep saying we are in it together, all of us. So I'm is just as vulnerable as everybody else, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to, and I really try to remember that all the time, that we're all being vulnerable in here. Mm-hmm. And I can say as somebody who is in a classroom, much, much smaller spaces. But yet I know that when something happens in a, in a room that sparks the emotion, even of one person Mm -hmm. that that becomes explicit, it just goes like wildfire among the humans. Right. And so managing that in a small classroom, because it becomes very complicated between people's reactions and their projections, and then Mm -hmm. the reactions to the reactions, it's, it's exponential, right? 
that's in a small classroom, a classroom with 800 people. Yeah. This is, I don't know, an exercise in... In bravado. Bravado. Or, or insanity. Well, students, the reason we can do it and the reason the class fills every semester is because the students have a sense of trust mm -hmm. that, that, I'm, that I'm going to hold it down. And the students that are in the room, who are in the room, can develop that trust. And, and I, I have to say, I'll say, I think I maybe said it, I'll say it again. A lot of the, a lot of things that people say about the class, negative things people say, are from are people who have never actually been in the class. They just hear stories. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the class, you obviously get a feel for it. So, mm -hmm. And I don't want to lose the fact that um, the class is also uh, set up. And this was uh, a result of you following the energy of students and following the educational needs and inspirations of students. But the class is set up for people to be in discussion groups so yes. that they're debriefing and walking through reactions to things and then bouncing off of each other. And obviously those sessions are led by undergraduates who are being trained to facilitate. So it's not that they're led by professional, you know, seasoned facilitators, but still that's those spaces have been core to giving students a space and giving all the students in the class a space to metabolize yes. what's happening in the class and things. And most students talk about those being um, some of the most important parts of the class is that they get to the, the the conversations that they have with their peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Much to, to you know, <laughs> there. Once to, I got to work with my ego on that. Once again, if I could joke about it, well, because students will say commonly, the discussion groups are my favorite part of the class, and I think, what am I chopped liver? <laughs> like, come on, man. But I, I can tell you, <laughs> like, just to hit your no. ego even further, when I used to visit all of the discussion groups, uh -huh. you know, back in uh -huh. the day, even then, students were always. I mean. It, there'd always be someone in every discussion group who was, I can't believe that Sam did this. I can't believe that he said that. Why is he doing it? And then other people would respond to that. It was always, yeah. always, always um, a critique of what you said. And then a conversation about yeah. some issue in, re in relation to that, which is, you know, I guess what you want, but it certainly doesn't, it's not an ego boost. Can I get people to think that's, that's what I do, right? For whatever reason, I have thick skin that I can allow that to happen. And, and I do allow it to happen, and it does happen. And what keeps you doing it? I think that I, when I was uh, 20 years old, in my middle of my third year of college, in which I was still a freshman in terms of credits, and it, you know, was on probation and practically dropped out and so on, I had transferred to a community college. I was, it was, this was it. This was do or die. I had a, an awakening moment. And then I just, I woke up to thinking, woke up to life and became a really serious student. And then I, I, I walk into class looking for the Sam Richards, the people who aren't turned on to thinking. And even they might get A's and B's and so on, but they're not turned on to thinking. And I just want to drop that little, those nuggets in them, whatever it is, you know, just fertilize that aha side of their brain it is is there any way going. is there any way that that's special or unique in a class on race ethnicity and culture well i i no i just think i i have a lot more material than than most people because everything we talk about in the class is relevant to everybody's everyday lives that may not be the case with lots of subject matters but mm -hmm. certainly as for this one mm -hmm. and so um i 
feel. So I'm really, I'm lucky in that sense. It's edgy enough, right? I mean, it's, it's connected to so many deeply politicized issues. But, what, but when you think about race, ethnicity, culture, right? I, uh-huh. I, I like what you're saying about this is stuff that's affecting everybody's li- life mm-hmm. in different ways every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then put next to that this, this part of you that just wants people to wake up to thinking. Mm-hmm. If, when you put those two pieces together, what is it that you want these people in I this class make, to I come out with? I want to make the world a better place. How? I want, I want people to treat each other with the dignity and respect that... That we all that we all should have, and not just people here in the United States, but people all over the world. So that means everybody. Everybody has bigotry, and everybody has their narrow-minded thinking, and, and everybody has something to learn. And, and so you, and so get, and so where does this like you need to wake up to thinking fit into that? Well, it world? just I think it just so happened that. You'd, the two came together for me as a sociologist. I started studying sociology, and as I woke up to thinking, I also woke up to seeing the world from the eyes of other people. And as I started to see it from the eyes of other people, and then as I started to travel more and more and more, I realized, hey, you know, we're, we're all very different, and yet we're all very similar. And I was seek, always seeking the ways in which both of those things are true, and the ways in which my life was imp- integrated or implicated with, I suppose you could really say, with the lives of other people around the world. When you talk about thinking, and when you talk about how you woke up, and how you want to wake other people up, Mm -hmm. I know that what goes along with that is, to use this word again, heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Because what we keep waking up to is how the world isn't how we want it to be. Um, And that, and actually, when we are seeing the world in our American-centric, Eurocentric, African-centric, whatever centric way, Mm -hmm. we're missing a lot of the things. And then when we wake up to what we're not seeing, a lot of times it can be shattering, Mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about waking up, it's not necessarily fun and light and smiling on the other side, right? So you're saying that this that the class isn't just about white supremacy and i would say is that just because you're a white guy and you're just diluting the potency of white supremacy and its power and oppressive qualities well you know white supremacy and i i don't like to use that word flippantly um but i do and and i i use it and define it in somewhat complex ways and see the potency of it and it needs to be discussed and it has its place and it needs to be discussed a because people who are white need to better understand the ways in which that operates in their lives and the ways in which it is operated or allowed people of white ancestry european ancestry to acquire and accumulate so much power relative to other groups and it's also important to talk about because a lot of students of color who flippantly use that word don't really understand how to talk about it. And so I'm, I understand how to talk about it. So that's part of, you know, using it. But at the same time, human beings are human beings, right? And so we have this way of wanting to point a finger out at other people, but we have three coming back at us. I think it was Gandhi who said that. And so a lot of times students who, of marginalized groups can 
misunderstand or fail to understand the ways in which they are part of dominant groups in which they can be part of the exploitive group without even realizing it. Which is the nature of being in a dominant group. Which is Is that you don't realize you're in the group. So then I have to ask the students of minoritized groups who are in my class, say, look, at what point do you have to look at your position in this system, this race-based white supremacist, racist system, especially if you're part of the middle class and half of all black Americans are in the middle class and are aspiring to get more and more power for yourself. And so for me as an instructor, I have to say, listen, I'm just going to leave these little ideas in your head to say, you got to question this. As an American, you have to walk away thinking about your American privilege. Now you can write it off as white privilege, but it's American privilege. And you got a militarist government out there that are, that are sending weapons all over the world who are acting on your, on your behalf to ensure, to make it more likely that you, know, you and not somebody in Bangladesh or Liberia or Sri Lanka is going to get the job that, in fact, you want to have. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that happens in Social 19. Everybody gets challenged. I've, I've come to the place where holding the masses responsible for the acts of governments and people with profound amounts of power I, I, is no longer uh, acceptable to me, right? This is in, in contrast to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, because I actually, because I think the, the degree of power that people have to make decisions for the masses does not square with the some of the power of the masses, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, but as a as a device, as a tool, um, I do think at, for educated people, i.e., students who are being educated, mm-hmm. having to reckon with and discern for oneself at what point do you become complicit? Yes, in a system. Yes, that is operating with or without your consent. Yes, that's actually I. I think that that's an important question or a set of important questions for any educated people to yes. be asking themselves. And so you're saying, no matter who you are, I'm going to use another example that it's to, 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 to create some kind of tension mm-hmm. between how you want to see yourself and actually what are some of the positions that you actually have with or without knowing. And, and some of the contradictions mm-hmm. in your thinking, mm-hmm. the way you're walking through the world. Mm-hmm. And especially, this is just me as a teacher. If you're willing to point your finger at other people, I'm going to take a look at what those those other three fingers that are pointing back at you. I'm going to tell you some of the things that those fingers are saying Mm -hmm. that you probably need to hear. And I have lots of examples because this is what I study. And what do you study? I am very much a student of U.S. foreign policy. I'm very much a student of U.S. corporate activity around the world. And I'm very aware of how things operate that in ways that elevate the dominant capitalist systems, in particular the U.S., at the expense of other people and other economies. And 
I'm quite capable of having those conversations um, with on any issue. And I'm going to have those conversations because that's the nature of being educated. Now, there are a lot of students who take my class who are who are really kind of on the left, maybe, or they just want to focus on a singular issue, say like race. And for me, you can't focus on singular issues. They're all tied in together. So we can focus on one for a hot minute, but then it's going to be implicated in other things. So let's talk about the television show that was created about Social 119 called You Can't Say That. Mm-hmm. It won an Emmy Award. It did indeed. Pretty interesting. And I think yeah. the reason that we should talk about it is because it was created in such a way that it actually gives a real a microcosm of Social 119. So it both shows mm-hmm. what's happening in the classroom and it shows what's happening in the discussion group afterwards. Or, you know, that, com- that a, is a, a typical discussion. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is a companion to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So it really tries to, to show that. And it is uh, highlighting edgy material from class and mm-hmm. students are talking about that edgy material. One of, the th- one of the case studies that you do in that show and that you do in your classroom on mm-hmm. a regular basis is picking as having somebody pick out the darkest skin person in the room mm-hmm. right so this is not a secret you know this is it gets critiqued it gets responded to it's all of the, the things mm-hmm. but this was one of the subject matters of this class i mean sorry of the show mm-hmm. and so it was an interest to me it was a really interesting conversation i was facilitating that conversation mm-hmm. and the first thing that we talked about as the post-class discussion mm-hmm. was that as soon as you ask the question of the student could mm-hmm. you know to to find the darkest skin person in the room the whole room went <gasps> mm-hmm. like everybody like you know the breath went out of the mm-hmm. room and that's what we started talking about as mm-hmm. and you know the students and um one of the one of the students who is a young woman her name is anna and she is sri lankan mm-hmm. her family is sri lankan and she has dark skin and she has the darkest skin as she talks about it in her family Mm -hmm. so it was always an issue for her and so in that conversation she was she was really taking the position that people that you're asking people to look at something and to pay attention to something that they don't want to pay attention to Mm -hmm. and she said you know he's asking us to pay attention and but people think that you shouldn't ask people to pay attention to that that that's actually hurting people Well, for me, not paying attention is the foundation of what I would say is racism, prejudice, and discrimination. So if I'm not willing to look at those things, then it's just, it would be the same thing as not being willing to look at the person, somebody in a wheelchair, and then somehow thinking that, well, they're the same as everybody else, and I'm going to treat them the same as everybody else, but I'm not because Mm -hmm. they're in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't understand the ways in which, for example, how colorism works, and discrimination based on skin works. People with the darkest skin are discriminated more than people with brown or mocha skin who are discriminated against more than people with lighter skin. And so let's have a conversation about that. Let's talk about it. And if we can't talk about it, then, then what, what it means is I'm, I'm probably going to operate in my life based on hidden assumptions about the way the world is. And if I'm operating on hidden assumptions, then I'm probably going to be racist. What I always tell students is, who do you think the racists are out there who aren't hiring people? 
They're, they're, they're your father and your uncle and your mother, and they're going to be you because they're not willing to look at these things and not willing to pay attention and talk about them. It's not some person out there who has a white robe in their closet. We know this. So the, the research is very, very clear about it. So when I do something like that, it obviously gets everybody's attention. But it's also part of the naturalistic approach to race. It's just that this is skin, you know. Um, but it but it really is meant to say, okay, now we have your attention. Let's talk about it. And so I could go in lots of different directions here on it. As a result, I know after asking that question, in that particular case, it was a woman who said, you know, I'm sorry. I, who said, she picked somebody out and she said, I'm sorry, a white woman. I said, why are you sorry? What are you sorry about? Are you sorry that this person has dark skin or are you sorry that you picked this person out of everybody else in the class who you could have picked? What are you sorry about? That's the beginning of a really important conversation that we need to have. And, um, you know, the other piece in that show that we did, I had a, a woman identify which of three Asian men, they were Korean and Chinese. Uh, uh, she was white also just turns out she was white. Had her pick out which one she thought was most handsome, and she didn't remember. She didn't think any of them were handsome. I'm like, well, why not? And so, one thing I I get more mail, more emails, correspondence from Asian men of Asian ancestry than any other single group because of the work that I've done regarding Asian men and their sexuality and attractiveness to other people in the world. So many emails. I have three in my inbox right now mm. from Asian men who've watched those videos and said, thank you for doing this. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that and talking about it. What's interesting, the, the word colorblind keeps coming out in, mm -hmm. as I'm thinking right now. And I'm thinking we all have been taught in the past couple of decades, uh, you know, you can't be colorblind. There's no such thing yeah. as colorblind, you know, blah, 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 colorblind. And you're, and in some ways you're saying, Okay, so All right, let's can't not be colorblind. Be, so let's not be. But 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 and interestingly, there's a you know one of the struggles is that we just don't know how not to be. Exactly. Right? So <laughs> if I do that, then you then maybe someone's going to not know any other way to respond other than maybe come at me somehow and say, "Oh, but you shouldn't do that. Don't not be colorblind in that way." And I think, well, what way should we do it then? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. You know. Incidentally, I have to add, I'll also. I've had people pick out the lightest skinned person in the class. Mm -hmm. Although like, it's very different politically, obviously, but it's when not you, just, but you know, again, when these you say are politically, complexing. I feel like you're not, I, I think politically sounds like, I feel like you want to, I think, I feel like no, you're in saying terms sociologically. Of power, sociologically, oh, okay. right. Okay. So if I were, if I were someone with brown skin or black skin and I said, hey, we're going to pick out the lightest skinned person in the class, it would, it had different meaning, right? But, but I also know that no white person wants to have translucent skin. And most black and brown people have no idea that that's true. That if you have translucent skin, so the degree to which you can see your veins really is, that is just not a mark of, of beauty in the white community. So we're going to have that conversation. Every conversation, we get to have every possible conversation in that class. Not every semester, of course, because there's not enough time. But right. I mean, I think it's a good example when you listen listen to the students talking about the segments of your mm -hmm. of your class in that show, um, because they really do challenge each other. And I mean, they talked about attractiveness and all the things that mm -hmm. we were referring to right now. But what do you think is the importance of that show existing? It introduced the class to a wider audience and an audience of adults in particular, and who 
responded back almost across the board positively saying, these are the conversations that I wish I could have today. Mm -hmm. I wish I had them when I was in college and I wish I had them today. The fact that you're able to have these open conversations. And I think that that's, it validates that it's not just students, but rather many, many people who can benefit from these kinds of, of, of discussions. And it's a, it's a tricky time right now. I mean, as moving forward with, with the class, um, because on one hand, you know, the, the movement that's happening around Mm -hmm. us, um, black lives matter movement is, is profound i mean just to see people all over the world responding in the way they did to george floyd's death not just the one person i don't think but just the series and the the repetitiveness of it i mean that that was it's it's been so profound to see that um and and yet it also is create has created in some places anyway just the sense of we have to unmask all of the the white supremacy everywhere. And I think it's, it's going with a little bit too much of a broad brushstroke in some Mm -hmm. cases. Right. And so social 19 is one of those places where it's going to be a different world to, to um, be able to, to, to operate. Yeah. And I've been critiqued, you know, people look back at some things and there's a critique. Oh, Sam shouldn't have done that. Even though in the moment in the room, you've got 300 and maybe 350 students of, of color in that room when I do an, a case study like that and nobody's demanding that I be fired or something. Right. I mean, cause clearly the con your people understand the context within which that is happening, but things change, you know, like over the years, I think about how the class has evolved and how I've evolved. And I've been lucky to have my kind of ear to the ground through you and through all the converse, the, the students with whom we work. So I don't just come up with, my ideas out of nowhere, I'm very tuned in to what people are thinking about what students are thinking about these issues uh, and, and from all over the, 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 the U.S. and all over the world. So I know how to talk about things. I know what the, the new words are, the way to talk, you know, the, the multiculturalism. You can't don't use that word. That's out, you know, like, OK, it, I've been I've been really lucky to get Im- immediate ongoing feedback over the years. Right. And. That, that allows me to not be tone deaf and tuned out mm-hmm. because I'm following students. Mm-hmm. So how do I know that, you know, how, how huge, you know, wigs are in the black community? Because I'm watching, because I'm having conversations with, you know, five of, of uh, 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 women of African ancestry in our offices talking all about their wigs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right, hey, and I'm telling about my mom's wigs and we're back and forth. I'm learning at every moment. This is just information I'm sucking in and I'm going to bring it back into the classroom. And, and a lot of professors wouldn't have that. You know, I think about, for example, how uh, LGBT students, a group of students came up to me after class quite a number of years ago and said, listen, you got to start using the word queer. Because when you say LGBT, we don't really trust you because we just use the word queer. This is the word we use. Which is funny because this was like in the 80s we used that word. And you, now. Yeah, you use it, it comes use it back. Again. But when I was a kid, you didn't say queer. Of course queer, you didn't. But, you know. No, no, no. Yeah. No, but don't. And in the 80s, we got yeah. to the place where it was like, oh, no, use that word use because that we're word. reclaiming that and, word. And then it was, it was, no, don't use it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it comes back. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, you, Sam Richards, you need to say queer, the queer community, queer students, queer studies, queer everything, because that that's a signal to us that says, okay, you get it. 
you're, you're on our team. Which is funny because right? I always thought you were using that term. So it just it, things have moved so fast. No, I so stopped fast. for a while. Yeah, I stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for about 10 years. I, I didn't. And they they brought me back in. But then, I don't know if you remember, we gave a talk somewhere a couple of years ago to a group of adults. And I just threw the word out there. And some guy afterwards came up and said, I'm, I was really offended that you used that word. Mm-hmm. And I forgot that I'm not with students anymore. And I said, well, hang on. If you go talk to young people, that's the word everybody uses. So you know, I had to bring him up to speed on it, you know. But this, so this is, uh, it's not easy. But I, I think maybe more of what you're saying is is that, or, or just more the, the theme of what you're saying, is that you're talking to students and people not just students but yeah. you're talking to people all the time all so the so this time. isn't and and social 119 and um has evolved with history over the whatever however many yeah. decades you've been in that classroom yeah. i keep yeah. forgetting the math i mean not that that doesn't that doesn't make what you're doing beyond critique at all trust me that you can't say that uh, title of the show is yeah. the perfect title because I say it to you probably every yeah, other yeah, day. The, the Sam, producers came up with that. You cannot say that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Please do not. It literally happened last night, you know, in the middle of my mom's illness. You posted something in our family group text that I was like, Sam, you can't say to myself. Yeah. I said, Sam, you can't say that. And then I, but. It, but I, I mean, I. But your family knows me. They, so, but but it's at not, the same time, listen. Knowing you. It's, 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 about, it's about, it's about, it's about um, that you're you're it's like there's a sincere yes. way that you walk into yes. uncomfortable situations and, and then I, I treat everybody as a subject and you, always you treat everybody as if they are capable of of learning and, yes. and of responding and of being agile and of and of respect mm-hmm. and so that you know it's just it can be a little bit awkward in some ways, because maybe people are expecting certain things. Like I don't have standards of beauty, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have them. They don't exist in my mind. It's. A, it's I would so, actually have to agree with even. I mean, I can attest to that. But so so, yeah, which is un, unusual and actually unbelievable. Yeah. But it is. I I think actually even true. But I think the reason that I'm saying it, I don't think you have to say more. I just think that this again. I want to go back to the the work your the body of your work as a type of yes. art that you do it in a way this is again what i observe it's because you have to do it you don't know how not to do it and you're doing it all the time you're absorbing information on one hand people's stories people's realities um all the time yes. and then you're just sharing it you're kind of putting it through this uh something it just comes through you again and then you share it with other people and then you get more feedback so there's a constant loop of feedback that you're getting all the time and i sometimes Mm -hmm. think people are thinking that you're operating without feedback and i think that i don't know how you actually manage all the feedback that you get i think i'm driven by a deep curiosity that is shaped equally shaped by a a moral, a sense of desiring a moral order that is just and fair. And I'm a sociologist who studies power, and I see that it's not, and not just here in the U.S., but in other places. And and I think I've just really given my life to to pointing things out that I think can make the lives of all of us better if we point them out.
So how often do you miscalculate in the classroom? You mean touch on something when maybe I should have left it alone? Whatever your experience is. Well, hmm, surprisingly, not that often in a way that disrupts large numbers of people. There's always a miscalculation with one or two people somewhere. I mean, it's a big room. Every, everybody is going to be offended or uncomfortable. A lot of the, sometimes people will say they're offended when, in fact, what they really mean to say is they're uncomfortable. Offended is just sort of the quick response that people use. This generation, I think, in particular. But there's always going to be somebody who's uncomfortable with something, no matter what I say. If I walk in the class and say hello. If I walk in the class and say hola in Spanish, someone's going to be offended, you know, or uncomfortable. So I'm, and also I've learned to be pretty careful about how I talk about things. You know, it's a big class. There's somebody, whatever it is that I talk about, somebody's had the experience. So if I want to, whatever, if I say something about eating disorders, I know basically what percentage of people in the class, men and then women, have experienced eating disorders. So I'm not going to make light of that. Um, and if, if I talk about something, whatever, you know, the sociological study of suicide, there are a certain number of people I know are in there thinking about suicide. And not only that, but there's probably at least one person that's got a plan and that's, that's deep. And so, or have experienced the suicides of family or friends. Uh, listen, ten percent of the class, mm-hmm. right? So, I'm very, I'm very careful about that. And and then what I've learned over the years is that sometimes when people are, you know, like last in in the fall when some Chinese student reported me to the report hate. No, website. to the affirmative action. Office. Well, it was report hate. Okay. For an article that I used in class, and then. And then three other Chinese students thanked me for using the article. You know, it's that sort of thing. Or I think about the time I was telling the story about the first time I took um, one of my, a student from Rutgers back in the day. We went to the, I helped him in the bathroom to urinate. And I walked people through the whole process. And it's kind of, it's a way to say, hey, if you don't have, once once you start having certain experiences, you get more comfortable and you break down the awkwardness and then you start seeing people as subjects, mm-hmm. right? And I told, I walked people through the whole story and it's kind of funny, but it's really touching at the same time. And after class, some student came down and said, wow, I'm really thankful that you talked about that and you did it. My brother's in a wheelchair and people always treat him like he's an object. And it's like your story because it was kind of funny and it just really helped people. I thought it helped to break down some barriers, right? The next morning, I got a long email from a student who was really upset about it father's in a wheelchair and you just made light of it and it's not funny and it's this and it's that and i that's that would be the typical kind of not typical not that it happens often but it's often that there are two different ways of of seeing something um you know i i i outed a student accidentally one time and and she was really upset that i outed her she thought i knew she was gay and and i i actually didn't know she was gay um, and Wait, so, so how did you out her if you didn't know she was gay? I, I think I somehow asked her in class something. I it was when I was doing the ventriloquism thing with the umo. The remember my ventriloquism doll. I was doing something somehow. I just asked her. I don't know whatever it was. She felt like she had to come out, and she did. And then she was really. This was you know 
15, 17 years ago when it was, you know, people didn't come out so easily. And, and so I, you know, I felt bad about that, but I didn't know if she was gay. So I didn't, I didn't feel that bad. I mean, I felt bad. It wasn't like you were fishing for it. I wasn't fishing for it. It was really an accident, but turns out that there's, she later talked to the student who is in the class who experienced her coming out and it, she was so moved by the story that she was on a on a trip. She went to visit a friend, and she was telling her friend about this experience in class and how courageous this woman was to come out in her social nineteen class and how awesome it was. And her friend came out to her, and her friend was planning to commit suicide, hmm. but she came out to her friend, and then they were able to have this conversation. And so then she told this woman, and this woman then came back to me and said, "Hey, man, remember how I was really." angry with you but here's what happened wow and i thought well okay that's kind of cool um so there there are a lot of but needless to say i i miscalculate but but i'm not as often as one one might imagine because i've had a lot of experience and I, i know how how far to move in different directions well sam richards Yes, Lori Mulvey. Thank you for talking about all of these dimensions of your work. And I hope that in doing that, we're, we're able to see, maybe to, to create yet a different conversation about where your work, this body of work fits into our world. Well, maybe someday someone will ask me what I do as a teacher and I'll, I'll, I'll listen to, to this and I'll have an answer for them. <laughs> Maybe. How about that? (laughs) All right. Thank you for the questions. Mm -hmm.